This is episode 224 of the Land Stewardship Project's Ear to the Ground podcast. This episode is the first in a three-part series titled Farming on Stolen Land. My name is Elizabeth McCarewitz, and I work in the membership program of LSP. These three episodes were developed as a guide to exploring issues of native land justice and equity in Minnesota's food system. While I believe everyone will learn something from this series, these interviews were collected especially with white farmers in mind. That is the perspective I bring to the table. I am white and I have a background as a diversified vegetable farmer. There's a lot to dig into here and I hope to cover more in future series, but for now I'm starting at the beginning. These three episodes will focus on themes particularly relevant to those of us living in the Dakota homeland. What does it mean to be a non-Indigenous person living on Native land? What is the history of the Dakota on this land? How are the Dakota working for sovereignty, both in the food system and beyond, and how can we, as non-Indigenous folks, support that work? We'll kick off this series with that first question. What does it mean to be a non-Indigenous person living on Native land? In this episode, I'll introduce the concept of whiteness. As a white person raised in a society where white people hold most of the power, I grew up seeing whiteness as the norm. Everything else was the exception. My parents were and are good people. They could identify and call out blatant racism when they saw it. But I was never really taught to interrogate my own stake in whiteness. How has being white shaped my identity and lived experience? Author Nora Murphy had a similar upbringing. When she asked her grandfather where her people came from, he replied, Oh, we're just potato famine Irish. As if their arrival to central Minnesota in the late 1800s, along with thousands of other white settlers, was inconsequential. Nora has now learned otherwise and was kind enough to talk to me about her book, White Birch Red Hawthorn, in which she explores what it means to be a white person living on stolen land. I asked Nora to kick off this episode with a passage from her book, in which she reflects on some of the stories she learned about whiteness growing up. She mentions two of Minnesota's most beloved folk heroes, Paul Bunyan and Laura Ingalls Wilder. Thanks for listening. If Paul's story taught generations of Americans, including my grandparents, my parents, and me, that the woods were ours to be killed, Laura Ingalls Wilder taught American school children that the woods we destroyed were empty. I was first introduced to Laura and her family's log cabin during the late 1960s. The Vietnam War was in full swing and our fourth grade teacher had been called away from the classroom on special assignment in the National Guard. While he was gone, the substitute teacher read aloud to us during a cold spell in Minneapolis that kept us inside during recess. Under the fluorescent lights that hung in parallel rows above our Formica desks, I listened, we all listened, to Mrs. Bachman read The Little House in the Big Woods. Blizzard winds blew outside our tall classroom windows and I could feel the snow melting on Pa's beard as he hugged Laura after a trip to town. I could taste the sweetness of the hard maple sugar packets he brought home. I could hear the wind coming into the chinks between the wooden logs when Laura lay tucked under the quilt at night. I longed for more of Laura's world that winter. I went to the traveling bookmobile every Thursday to borrow and read all nine books in the series. 
By Easter vacation, I had convinced my mother to take me and a friend to a fabric store and buy several yards of dark green plaid cotton, black thread, and a simple dress pattern. Several days later, we'd sewn our pioneer dresses. We wore them around the neighborhood with dedication, and as the spring days warmed into summer, the long sleeves and long skirts grew hotter and itchier, but I refused to give up my make-believe pioneer world. Instead, I elaborated. I found an old sheet in the attic that I turned into a sunbonnet and apron. I found an old pair of skates in the basement and unscrewed the blades and wore them as lace-up boots. I hand-stitched a quilt for a newborn cousin. And when I lifted up the scratchy green plaid dress over my arms and stepped into my make-believe past, I thought everyone wanted to be a pioneer like my hero, Laura. It's now, only many decades later, as a homeowner who trims my front lawn as neatly as Paul trimmed the entire North Woods, that I am beginning to see that not everyone would want to play Laura. Certainly not my colleagues in the Native community. Laura and Paul displace the ancestors of my friends and colleagues at the Minneapolis Thanksgiving Celebration powwow, who belonged to the state's three major tribes, the Dakota, the Ojibwe, and the Ho-Chunk. So what's, what was Laura Ingalls Wilder, what was the lesson she was trying to teach with her books? I believe I took away a sense of home and comfort, a sense that this home and comfort could be carved out of and was carved out of land that was empty and land that could be freely taken by European Americans and that there was no consequence, there was no cost to either the European settlers or to the land itself, but was all there freely given to us. And that is a fallacy. It wasn't until I started working at the Minneapolis American Indian Center and getting involved in the Native community and events like the Minneapolis Thanksgiving Celebration Powell that I began to realize that there was a whole different history of America and of our woods, of Laura's Big Woods and Little Prairies, that indeed those woods were not empty and that there were millions of people who lived in these lands and that there were dire, dire consequences for the indigenous people who were living in Laura's woods and in the prairies, uh, both here in Minnesota and around the country. And not only for them, but also for those of us who conquered, that there is a price for conquering in our own hearts of denial, of cruelty, that has got its own shadows that follow us still. One thing that is a known um, economic development strategy is to pass wealth from generation to generation. And uh, a really uh, successful way of passing wealth from one generation to the next is through ownership of land and sales of land and housing. And uh, for Native people who gave, uh, a, 
who were forced to give up, who were stripped of, who were forced to sacrifice their lands. There is uh, no access, virtually no access to that method of, of well-being. All of the redlining and segregations of neighborhoods and where people could own homes in cities like Minneapolis and St. Paul just kept the ability to own a home, to have land in the hands of white people, not in the hands of the native people whose land it was originally. So. In my own family, we started with 160 acres of a homestead land that was stolen in central Minnesota. Um, and from then on, each generation has been able to have enough money to buy a home, to buy land and pass it on so that all of us have homes and all of us will be able to pass it on to the next generation. That is how I personally, and my, even my children, will benefit from the stolen land and the pioneer myth that this land is empty and it doesn't belong to anyone. And that that's hunting to me. And I recently did sell my home and decided that I would make a significant donation back to a Native um, cause. And I also called together my cousins to make a donation in honor of the 160 acres that we um, all benefit from today because we have financial resource and security that the rest of our colleagues and native hosts are very likely not to have just because of how things were set up in the very beginning. There were 16 of us who were the progeny of this 160 acres in central Minnesota that I write about in White Birch, Red Hawthorne. And some of them were just jumped on right away. They intuitively also understood that we have a privilege that's not ours and that there's reparations are totally due. But there were others who were very feisty and argumentative and ag would not agree to participate. I really believe that each one of us in this country has an opportunity to not remain stuck in the past, but to be able to take action today and live in a good way. That it's really possible to recognize that there were grievous uh, wrongs in the past and that we can touch the pain of the suffering and acknowledge the pain of the suffering but we don't have to remain in the past we can move forward in a good way and it's possible to connect because that's what the human heart wants to do that's what the this wondrous world this mother earth that we have wants us to do not none of us live separate and distinct from any other species or any other being or any other creature. We're all very, very much interconnected. And so as we move uh, forward and look for ways for healing, we can take action in our own ways um, to reconnect. I feel like there's an opportunity for us to, to begin to make some reparations. 
So I think one of the things that um, is really important to understand as to what is the hesitance of so many white people from really waking up from this dream, this illusion, delusion of um, of separation and of dominion, one, it seems like we have a lot and people don't want to give up. What we have is delusional and it's, it's um, not long-lasting, as we can see with how the earth is reacting uh, in response to how humans have treated the earth in the past 150 years. Better that we should switch course now than to hold on to a, a fake kingdom. But I think the other reason why so many humans are unwilling to really make a change and unwilling to really touch the sorrow of having caused so much pain is that there's not only pain that we've caused to others, the pain of knowing that so many Dakota children are lost even today to their families, let alone during 1862, let alone in the years of the exile, let alone during the boarding school era, or in my own family's case, the pillager band Indians who were the Ojibwe, um, who were given flour laced with poison and copper kettles that were poisonous that immediately killed people. I mean, we did that. The land that my my cousin, my sixteen cousins and I had, was made possible because of all that suffering out there. I mean, it is horrific, and it hurts to really stop and let that into the heart. So there's some human nature that's like, "Ouch! I don't want to touch that." But the other part is not only the pain that we cause others, but there's also the pain of our in our own hearts, of having left our homelands, of having separated from our ancestral lineage, of not knowing really where we come from or who we are. And that is a deep, deep, deep alienation and a deep, deep loss. And I think we haven't found the courage as a community of white dominating genocidal people to go back and and touch those lost stories and that sorrow. And I know in my own family that my grandfather Murphy passed this on to us. So it's not just my sorrow, but it across the generations of having lived in this land for at least five generations. My boys make six generations. My grandfather was 100% Irish. He was visible in the St. Paul uh, political and Minnesota political community, um, not as a famous person, but as one of the stalwart Irish politician-type people who was working in the trenches. And... It was his mother 
who was born in the Maples, that 160 acres, and his grandmother, who emigrated from Ireland. And I remember asking him as a child, where did we come from in Ireland? And he, who'd been raised in great poverty, said, oh, we were no one. We were just potato famine Irish. And so he had taught and probably had been taught to distance ourselves, that we were so shameful and so pitiful that the only way to survive would be to shut down our hearts from that loss. And I think, in a way, sometimes people who have suffered the most can sometimes be the cruelest to themselves. And I can only say, you know, in my own, my own family, my own community, that it takes a very compassionate, very vulnerable human being who can really say, this pain here, let us, let us look and hold this pain with compassion. My grandfather wasn't taught how to do it, and he was taught to hide. And so he passed on hiding. And when we hide, then we no longer are in touch with our hearts. And when we're not in touch with our hearts, it's much easier to lash out and harm other people. So I think as white people, as poor people, rich white people, it doesn't matter. Before we can have healing, we have to touch into our own hearts and discover where our own stories went missing and find our own connections back to our ancestral lands and stories and values. The values are and, and benefit, I would say, of reconnecting to my own family's story in Ireland is one, just like the noise of dissonance of like not belonging goes out. Like knowing that you belong somewhere, that there is a homeland, that there is a cottage where your great-great-grandmother was born. For me, that just silenced a, a noise of doubt and worry and exile. So I can't say anyone else would feel that, but that's how I felt when I went back to my great-great-grandmother's cottage in Central Ireland. I think another thing that's hard to explain, but when we can say where we come from, when we have a connection, you can't dominate if you have, if you belong in a place. If you have a story, you have a seat at the table, but you understand that there's many many places that there's an infinite number of places at the table if we don't know and we're wandering around like hungry ghosts dominators conquerors we can pretend like we can just take the whole table and call it our own but when you have an ancestral lineage you can sit down at the table and participate together with others there are, you know, when, when you look back at any culture, there's teaching stories, there's art forms that all 
shed prisms, ways of looking at what it means to be human. It doesn't mean it's that there's a single right answer for anyone, but if you have the um, gift of a cultural legacy, there's there are shards of possibility for you to help better understand what it means to be human. So it's very intangible. For me, some of this work happened on more of an unconscious level. Some of that grief that had not been spoken, had not been acknowledged, but passed on across the generations could come to the surface, be felt, and then healed. If we're hiding, if we've got these thorns and deep sorrows that we can't even see, we can't even acknowledge, they will continue to haunt us. But if you open to landing somewhere and to having an ancestral lineage, that grief can come to the surface and there can be healing and a peace. I think there's so much that is um, that needs to be done for our native hosts in this land, and we would have to bring everyone to the table and talk about that and see what it is that um, the native communities and, and nations are needing, and then work on that all together. My Great-great-grandparents, Katie Hughes Maher and John Maher, squatted on land that was, at the time, belonged to the uh, Pillager Band of Ojibwe. They just squatted on They had nothing. They came with no money or anything. And they stayed until the 1860s. They were there for probably five years before the 1862 Homestead Act was passed. And then they were able to um, get the land by staying on it for, I don't remember how many years you had to stay on your land to make the property turn to yours. So here they were, people with absolutely nothing. They did the land grab. They hopped on the land, just took it and said it was theirs. I think that the U.S. government, that the Catholic Church encouraged people to come and do that, that it was federal policy to expand the nation, to build up the, the uh, U.S. government economy, and so they were encouraged to do that. Yeah. Railroads, <coughs> education, the uh, mineral rights, all many, many corporations, and it, it's still true today, were given the opportunity to, to take land as well. I mean, the U.S. government wanted land and wanted money, and they used poor people to help be the pawns in this takeover, in the genocide. This is an unending journey. I feel like I began by... Uh, having this deep hunger to understand. I really felt when I began working at the Indian Center a dis-ease, a dis-ease in understanding that the history that I had been taught was untrue, that I really wanted to understand the facts of 
Minnesota history and American history and from my Native colleagues, and that called for a journey of understanding whose land my great-great-grandparents had stolen. So <laughs> there was initially a factual quest, and that took a number of years. Um, today it's easier because there's greater access on the internet and greater awareness in Minnesota about Indigenous rights and a willingness to tell what's quote-unquote untold stories. So that's, and that is a really great thing, that we have greater access. Um, we don't have complete access, and as I said before, there's still very limited, very limited access to Indigenous and um, writers and, and knowledge and uh, epistemologies in our schools, and our children are um, not being educated properly to this day. But that said, you know, say it took me 10 years to begin to piece together the facts. It took another 10 years or so to understand that facts are as good as the storyline through which they're told. And that's when I began to really start questioning stories of Dominion, like Paul Bunyan and Laura Ingalls Wilder, and all the ways in which we're reinforced every year with our happy 4th of July or um, uh, what a great nation we are. But we're just inculcated over and over again with our stories and our songs of dominion in this nation. Look at the Minnesota state flag and that symbol of the farmer coming in and the native man heading west. Understanding the storylines takes another level or layer of undoing the conqueror mentality that I inherited. But I think last and an ongoing journey in this life is really for it to shift into the heart and body and um, that it's not always what we know, but it's how we, how our heart feels and not living in a way that we assume that we know what's right or that we can be in control of anything. And that is a lifelong journey. And I'm still very, very much on that journey. To cap off this episode, I asked Nora to read a passage from her book in which a colleague of hers from the American Indian Center asks what she plans to do with this newfound self-awareness. When you find the truth, what are you going to do? The leader asked me this question over supper a few years before he passed away. By this time, I had already completed the research uncovering my family's deceitful doctrine of discovery in the maples. I had visited Nakahopal in the hills of Tipperary, where my great-great-grandmother Katie was born. I had been back to the woods and the maples and felt their generous acceptance. Through research, I could name who conquered the land in Minnesota and whose land they had taken. 
The conquerors included officials like Henry Lace, who swindled tribes through unethical business dealings, and Alexander Ramsey, who led the fight to exterminate the Dakota. They included missionaries like letter-writing Father Piers and his fellow Benedictine monks and nuns, who had tried converting the Ojibwe or forced them to stop speaking their native tongue. I also knew that the conquerors include, even if indirectly, all of us who continue to live here on stolen land. But deep down, once I knew the truth, once I found it, I had to acknowledge and address the difficult feelings that surfaced, the fear, the shame, and the grief. Chris's pointed question demanded next steps. What was I going to do? Education and facts alone aren't enough to heal relationships. It was one thing to experience a momentary embrace alone in Max's woods, a place where I stood in surrender with the trees and listened, but to listen well and in community would require more of me. It would require giving up my tunnel vision as a conqueror. But how? For me, the answer lies somewhere in learning how to bridge the gap between intellectually understanding and letting go of the sense of entitled domination I assumed. Until I saw this gap, I thought I had learned pretty much all there was to understand about the pernicious war that haunts our land and communities. I didn't understand yet the importance of giving up being the expert or giving up thinking the whole world was set up just for me and mine. This was a humbling step. Here I was, an educated woman with a lifelong passion for history, a passion that brought me around the country and around the world, from the Lexington Green where the Minutemen fought the first battle in the American Revolution to the Plymouth Harbor from which the pilgrims sailed. During my long apprenticeship in the Native community, I'd learned new stories about this land and its people. I'd marshaled all the best of my research and writing and critical thinking skills to find supporting evidence for the new stories I was learning, yet I was still stumped, stuck in a purgatory where I could see the truth but still couldn't listen. What was holding me back? Why was it so hard to let go of dominion and control? An answer arrived in a dream. It turns out I had to discover compassion for myself first. And to do that, I had to find and touch my own deepest scars. A huge thank you to Nora Murphy for sharing her story with us. And if you'd like to hear more from Nora, her book, White Birch, Red Hawthorn, is available at local bookstores in the Twin Cities. Now that Nora's got us on the right track for asking some really difficult questions, I'd like you to take a minute to look up the This American Life episode, Little War on the Prairie. A quick Google search will do it. 
For those of you unfamiliar with the history of Minnesota's settlement by white people, this episode will give you a quick and dirty education. After listening to that history, you'll be ready for the next episode in this series, a peek into the life of Carly Badhart Bull, the Dakota activist organizing for truth in her people's homeland.